Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. In February of 1817, a group of Kentucky citizens were given permission by the Kentucky General Assembly to incorporate under the title of Contributors of the Fayette Hospital in order to establish a public hospital to treat mentally ill patients and those who were too poor to afford adequate medical care. After a rocky start due to an economic downturn, the Lunatic Asylum was established by the Legislative Act of 1821. Since then, that hospital would witness many name changes, a few wars, and its fair share of scandals. As we know it today, Eastern State Hospital is managed by UK Healthcare and has moved its facility to the University of Kentucky's Coldstream Research Campus. To learn more about the history of Eastern State Hospital, the second oldest hospital in Kentucky, we invited two guests to the podcast. Susan Griffith is the Associate Hospital Administrator at Eastern State and Vicki Franklin, who is the Community and Staff Engagement Director. Welcome Susan and Vicki. Thank you for joining us today. Susan, you've done a lot of research on the history of the hospital. Can you tell us a little about the early history of how it was established? So in 1817, a group of Lexington citizens established the Fayette Hospital, Mm -hmm. and this became a place to house the poor and underserved and what was referred to at the time, the lunatic members of society. Basically, the group wanted a place for individuals that no one else wanted in the community. Okay. So did they, just because they didn't have another place for them at another hospital, was the intention for this hospital to be, a, I guess, a lunatic asylum or? Yes. Um, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes. So in the beginning, there were no funds for the facility. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to raise money for the construction of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And they finally did secure the funds for the Fayette Hospital. Mm-hmm. And the Honorable Henry Clay did speak at that event, okay. at the dedication. And But that particular hospital was never finished. And in 1822, the Kentucky legislature purchased what was the old Fayette County Hospital, and they passed an act to establish a lunatic asylum. And on May 1st, 1824, what we now know as Eastern State Hospital was opened. And the very first admission was a 21-year-old female from Woodford County. And during that first year, 41 patients were admitted to the hospital. Wow. So after it was established, and it was funded by the state, that's how, okay, the patients that were admitted to the hospital, what kind of mental issues did they deal with? Do you know? Well, at that time, the board of directors, Mm -hmm. they did not have a medical background. So the superintendent was not a physician. Mm -hmm. And it was really a place for boarding of individuals that were considered the lunatic, Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak, uh, members of society. And they were individuals who were considered to be incurable and who were too violent to be kept with their families. I see. Okay. So it wasn't like a necessarily medical... Diagnosis. Diagnosis. So we, we knew very little about mental illness yes. back then. So to the way we have it, we yeah. know it today. Yes. Yeah. Historically, most people with mental illness were cared for at home, but for those individuals who could not be cared for at home, wards were created in hospitals to house them. Treatments were harsh. 
Cages and other restraints combined with long-term isolation were the norm. Around the time of the establishment of the Eastern State Lunatic Asylum, a new, gentler therapy was gaining ground. Dorothea Dix was a leading figure in this movement to kinder therapies for people with mental illnesses. So you said the superintendent was not a medical professional. Hmm. Um, who was the first superintendent of the hospital? The first superintendent was Dr. John Rowan Allen, okay. and he was the first one to oversee medical care. Okay. So what kind of therapy did they practice? Dr. Allen, he believed and implemented what was called moral therapy. Mm-hmm. And the belief for moral therapy is that if a person is insane, mm-hmm. that they can simply be helped by treating them more and well. What did they define as moral? Just through conversations? Or Conversation, what? positive reinforcements, oh, okay. um, therapeutic activities, and um, what was called a meaningful work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things on grounds were maintained by the patients as well as staff. So they actually time. worked, the patients actually yes. worked on mm-hmm. the grounds. Yes. So in my research for this, we I learned a lot about Dorothy Dix as an advocate for mentally ill patients. Can you talk to us a little bit about Dorothy Dix and her role? Well, Dorothea Dix is the creator of a first generation of American mental asylums. Mm-hmm. And she came to the Lexington campus during this time. Mm-hmm. She had developed a passion for individuals with mental illness mm-hmm. from a trip that she had taken to England and she had learned how the mentally ill were treated in Europe, and she had found that they were being kept in cages. Mm -hmm. They were beaten, chained, and tied up. So she decided to advocate for change in America, and her mission was to make life better for the mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And Dorothea came to Eastern State, or the Eastern State Lunatic Asylum at that time, to speak out about the improved conditions and overcrowding. Overcrowding would be a continuous problem for the asylum. Newspaper articles in 1886 and 1897 and hospital reports indicated that there was massive overcrowding due to underfunding of building projects. As you can imagine, closed and overcrowded areas, disease outbreaks are common. I also read about the the considerable overcrowding. Yes. How was that issue addressed? During that time period, people were just housed in a few buildings. There okay. weren't a large number of buildings at that time. And every time that they would secure funding, they would build additional buildings okay. for patients. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they drive by there, they notice that there are a lot of yes, separate multiple, multiple buildings. And um, it grew over time. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't all built all at once. Right. So, of course, we can't talk about Eastern State Hospital without discussing its role in the cholera epidemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about that era? Yes. The first cholera epidemic, it's reported that about 45 patients Mm -hmm. died from the cholera epidemic. And there's information that shows that the superintendent at Mm -hmm. that time was taking great measures to find what's the root cause of Mm -hmm. cholera. And during that second wave of the cholera epidemic, and it reached its peak at Eastern State in 1850. Mm-hmm. roughly 1850, um, and nearly 100 patients died yeah. during that time. And in all, it's reported about 370 individuals died. And on the grounds of Eastern State, and it's located 
near where the railroad track is now and where 4th Street mm-hmm. uh, meets the railroad track on the campus, there used to be a spring okay. on that was there, and it was the main source of water for the campus. And after more individuals were sick and more residents fell ill from cholera, the superintendent and staff determined that that was the source, the source of, the of, of the epidemic. Okay. And so that at that time, mm-hmm. the uh, spring was drained and they no longer used that mm-hmm. on campus. And from the history that I see, most of the cholera epidemic was in Eastern State. Mm-hmm. It was not reported to be as prevalent around the city as it was there at the hospital. Yeah. 1855 saw a third cholera outbreak among the patients of Eastern Kentucky Lunatic Asylum. While not giving the number of patients affected, the Kentucky Statesman reports on the end of the violent outbreak on August 3, 1855. Later, in 1911, a new disease swept through the asylum, pellagra, which is a disease caused by a niacin deficiency. Symptoms include high sensitivity to sunlight, aggression, dermatitis, red skin lesions, insomnia, weakness, mental confusion, diarrhea, dementia. Pellagra is rare these days, as niacin is included in any fortified food. In August of 1911, 17 cases of pellagra were reported at the asylum. Who were some of the people that that were admitted to the hospital? Do we know their names? Do we have a a log of the patients? That information would be in archives. It is a state facility still. You know, there's certain limitations to logs that were kept in history, but state archives would be who houses that information. information. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. So what kind of care did the building receive in terms of upkeep, in terms of renovations? How did they fund renovations. Yes. Well, one of the most interesting things about fundraisers Mm -hmm. at Old Eastern State Mm -hmm. was at the administration building, which still stands on the campus today. It's Mm -hmm. the building with the large white columns. Superintendents would have what was called the lunatic balls. Mm -hmm. And during the lunatic balls, they would invite dignitaries from across the state because Eastern State at one time, and especially in the beginning, served surrounding states. As well was as it the Kentucky only hospital for the area? In, Is that why? They, in this area, yeah. there was one. The oldest hospital mm-hmm. was in Virginia, okay. and then Eastern States served Kentucky and all surrounding mm-hmm. states. And once overcrowding began, the state determined to only have patients from Kentucky. I see. And then the superintendents would have the lunatic balls Mm -hmm. and invite dignitaries from across the state, and they would raise money for building of additional buildings and supplies for the residents. Were African Americans allowed to be treated at that hospital? There was a special wing that was for individuals of color, yes. And that was post-Civil War. As with many government-run institutions, the hospital was segregated. There were specific quarters for black men and women. Records do indicate that conditions were subpar compared to where white patients were housed. In an open letter addressed to the Kentucky legislature in January of 1906, the Committee of Lexington Colored Preachers raised concerns about deplorable conditions, and the buildings where African-American patients were being treated were dilapidated. The overcrowding situation in these quarters led to the spread of diseases like tuberculosis. 
So now that we speak about the Civil War, can you talk to us a little bit about the hospital's role during the Civil War? What types of activities happened at the at the hospital? For the most part, during the Civil War, the hospital remained untouched. Mm-hmm. But there are reports that soldiers did use the facility as a camp, mm-hmm. and some old historic pictures show mm-hmm. that Union that, soldiers, yes, mm-hmm. yes, used it as a camp. The asylum was not without its scandals. The most notable of these involved a Dr. Robert C. Chenault. The newspapers report his appointment to medical superintendent of the hospital in June 1875, a job he kept for five years until Dr. W. O. Bullock was appointed. In 1883, however, Governor J. Proctor Knott swiftly removed Dr. Bullock as the medical superintendent, reappointed Dr. Chenault, effective October 1, 1883. The letter reproduced in the October 6th of 1883 Lexington Daily Transcript does not give any reason for Dr. Bullock's removal. Two years later, in 1885, a series of articles appeared in the Lexington Daily Transcript entitled The Asylum Racket, recounting the testimonies received by the Asylum's Board of Commissioners for the charges against Dr. Chenault. The testimonies report Dr. Chenault as being constantly drunk, having inappropriate relationships with his patients, charging into rooms where female patients were changing or otherwise not dressed. One doctor reported having resigned his position specifically because of the immorality of Dr. Chenault. Interestingly, the author of this article notes that journalists were barred from the commissioner's meeting, but that he climbed up on the roof and slipped a telephone, quote-unquote, down the chimney to listen in. The testimonies given both against and for Dr. Chenault can be read in the October 17th and 18th of 1885 issues of the Lexington Daily Transcript. Kentucky legislators convened a joint committee to determine the conditions of the asylum as well as the validity of the charges against Dr. Chenault. The committee of five men delivered their report to the legislature, finding the conditions in the asylum to be excellent and the reports of abuse against Dr. Chenault unfounded. However, Dr. Chenault was removed from his position a year later, in October of 1886, by Governor Knott. It seems Dr. Chenault and the asylum steward, Colonel T. Logan Hawker, disagreed about Dr. Chenault's authority over the gardening and farming staff. Colonel Hawker escalated the conflict to the governor's office, and Governor Knott demanded the resignation of Dr. Chenault. Dr. Chenault, however, refused to resign, forcing his removal by the same governor that appointed him. Dr. Chenault appeared one more time in the papers under a cloud of scandal. In 1891, he was arrested and charged with assault and battery for kicking a female patient down the steps of a private sanitarium in Lexington. In the early part of 1894, there was talk about possibly moving the asylum to Louisville. At that time, the superintendent, Dr. Clark, did not ask for enough money to be appropriated to expand and improve the facility. Editorials were published in the leader about those gangsters from Louisville trying to wreck one of Lexington's oldest institutions. When overcrowding and bad conditions became an issue, the board commissioners had to go to Frankfurt and ask for more funds from the legislature in order to keep the hospital running. Eventually, they were able to receive even more funds to expand on the campus and hire more staff. There were also several claims of untimely deaths at the asylum with no explanation or statistics kept. One of these deaths was of notable lawyer William S. Victor. He was the father of famous actress Marie Prescott. He died in July of 1894, but his family was not informed until the beginning of August. The article in the Leader of August 9, 1894 also mentions a suicide that went unreported. One death, however, did go to trial. In July of 1906, the State Board of Control opened an investigation into the death of Fred Ketterer, who was found beaten to death the previous month. 
Several attendants were questioned, but only once did trial. Fred Ferris. According to newspaper articles in Lexington Leader of 1906, Ferris had beaten Ketterer when he refused to take a bath. Other attendants were there and witnessed the incident. He was found guilty and given a five-year prison sentence. The hospital's formal name was the Lunatic Hospital of Kentucky until when? In 1912, the hospital was beginning to move more from a boarding facility to more of a medical facility and a place to actually focus on mental illness. And so in 1912, the state of Kentucky gave the name Eastern State Hospital, and it's stayed that name since. They were moving from being an institution to shelter mentally ill, but rather a place where they provided psychiatric care and nursing care. Mm -hmm. And it's also during that time that they built a nursing dormitory so that they could house nurses, but also it was training for nurses because the census at that time was, it was nearing 2,000 patients. How much of the staff were dedicated to those patients? Approximately 130 staff or 2,000 patients. That's pretty big for for that time. As mental health treatment was advanced, how did patient care change at the turn of the century? During the early 1900s, medication wasn't as prevalent. Patient care was focused more on, they used the slogan, patients first Mm -hmm. at Eastern State at that time. And that's where you saw the beginnings of the use of occupational therapy and social work. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the 40s that you start to see treatments start to emerge, such as psychology. That's when the first psychologist started in Eastern State Hospital. And that's where you saw the emergence of electroshock therapy, Mm -hmm. malarial fever therapy, as well as insulin therapy. What's malarial fever therapy? That is the injecting individuals with malaria to induce a fever. Wow. Because it was believed that fever would help with that. that. That's interesting. I never heard of that. Mm -hmm. And insulin therapy would be kind of... You, how you would treat diabetes? You would um, inject a person with more insulin mm-hmm. to induce a coma. Oh, okay. To stabilize okay. that person. Okay, so it's like an insulin shock so, kind of thing. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And it was also during that time that patients spent the majority of their time working hand-in-hand mm-hmm. with staff. So the campus of Eastern State Hospital was 100% self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. There was a dairy barn, a chicken coop, a laundry facility, okay. a cannery, mm-hmm. gardens, orchard, wow. and staff because during that time staff also lived on grounds I see. along okay. with patients. So it was its own little world okay. all in its own, own little mm-hmm. city. Yes, exactly. it was. After the dismissal of two doctors accused of theft in October of 1897, two positions at the asylum remained open. In January of 1898, Governor Bradley appointed two new physicians, Dr. John L. Long and Dr. Louise Bergman. Dr. Louise Bergman was the first woman physician at the asylum and was given the position of third assistant physician. She was from Louisville and attended the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia. This position saw significant turnover in the early years. In 1901, Dr. Bergman was asked to resign by Governor Beckham. She is quoted by the Lexington Herald in April 1901. 
I was much surprised to receive the letter asking for my resignation, but when I had time to consider, I knew that I did not belong to the present administration. I do not have the least bitterness against anyone. While Governor Beckham never gave a reason for requesting her resignation, he did attempt to fill the position of the third assistant with a man. In 1898, a law was passed requiring this position to be filled by a woman physician. The Equal Rights Association was able to shut down the attempt to fill the position with a man illegally, and Dr. Minnie Dunlop became the second female physician at the asylum. She transferred to another facility in 1906 and was replaced by Dr. Florence Metter. Dr. Metter left in 1910, and Dr. Lydia Pogue was third assistant until December that year. Dr. Minnie Dunlop returned to the asylum in 1910. In 1937, Dr. Louise Healy took over the position. We weren't able to determine if Dr. Dunlop remained in her post until Dr. Healy took over. As care changed in the mid-1900s, how was the methodology of admitting patients changed? Well, with the emergence of the focus on diagnoses Mm -hmm. and medications, there became a certain criteria Mm -hmm. of how to be admitted to Eastern State. It wasn't a place that just because family couldn't manage you Mm -hmm. in your home environment that they could bring you to Eastern State and you would be housed there. You had to meet certain criterias. And with that, the census began to drop when the criteria became more stringent and new medications helped so Mm -hmm. that individuals could be treated outside of the hospital and more outpatient. And that's where you saw the growth of the community mental health centers that Mm -hmm. began to emerge. So psychiatric care became to be offered uh, in the community Mm -hmm. instead of within a restrictive environment of Eastern State. A lot of stories are heard around the community or around Kentucky about Eastern State. And some people, you know, when they're doing their genealogy research, they find out that a relative was admitted there. Is there a way for people to find out if family members were there or what kind of records are available out there? Yes. A lot of people think that we have some older records Mm -hmm. on campus at Eastern State, and we don't, Mm -hmm. but they are housed with the state, and any genealogy requests can be made through the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental and Intellectual Disabilities in Frankfurt. Recently, we've heard about some remains that were found on hospital grounds. Can Mm -hmm. you talk to us a little bit about that and what was found out? The original remains were found in the early 80s when they were building the Loudoun Extension. Mm -hmm. And at that time, roughly a thousand skeletal remains were found. And there were attempts by the state to identify families that may have had family members Mm -hmm. who had passed away at the hospital. And for any of the remains that were um, found, they created what was called the Eastern State Hospital Cemetery. Mm -hmm. And that is still located on the grounds of Eastern State, what is now the BCTC campus. And um, that cemetery still remains. Mm -hmm. And there was a monument erected to honor those individuals Mm -hmm. that were found. And then 
in 2004, there was another project going on on Eastern State's campus, and there were another 11 remains that were found. In 2003-2004, when the next 11 were found, the state was involved, Eastern State mm-hmm. Hospital, we were involved, as well as a UK genealogy department, and they did studies and determined the history of those individuals and and we, after I think it was in 2005, those individuals were reburied into the cemetery at Eastern State Hospital. Okay. And those are in marked graves there. And then in when Eastern State, the new Eastern State was being built and BCTC's campus was being built, another number of remains were found. Okay. And I think that was over 50 I think at that time. Do we know how those remains got there in the first place? Were they patients that were buried? Um, The ones, the remains that were found Mm -hmm. in 2004 were pre-Eastern State Hospital. That's what they were determined. Mm -hmm. They felt that it could possibly have been family that had lived on the campus. Also, for the number of individuals that were found during the Loudon expansion, those were individuals associated with the hospital. And at that time, psychiatric hospitals, a lot of times families would just leave family members at the hospital, and there were no connections. So Mm -hmm. when people did pass away, they would be buried on grounds. A lot of times, just over the years, if Mm -hmm. they were marked graves, signs deteriorated. They weren't stones. They were wood Mm -hmm. crosses, usually. So over time, those as the property was sold, Mm -hmm. those items just disintegrated. owns the hospital now and who manages the administration? Commonwealth of Kentucky owns Eastern State Hospital and UK Healthcare manages the hospital. And that was true as of September 2013. That's Vicki Franklin, the Community and Staff Engagement Director at UK Healthcare. When we moved into a new facility, which is located just a couple of miles down the road, um, again off Newtown Pike and close to the interstate, and that was a brand new 300,000 square foot building, which is quite an investment for the state of Kentucky to make in the care and treatment of individuals with mental health. What kind of treatment is offered at the hospital now, and what do you guys refer people to the outside care? I think probably the biggest change and maybe one of the misconceptions that people may have is Mm -hmm. that unlike the past where, as Susan mentioned, people would be left at the facility um, with family not knowing what to do with them or how to care for them, they would just leave them there. And people would spend the rest of their lives at Mm -hmm. the facility and grow old and die there. Times have changed dramatically. And, of course, in in recent decades, the push has been toward community-based health Mm -hmm. and not institutionalizing unless absolutely necessary because obviously civil liberties are involved. Mm -hmm. And so as Susan mentioned this earlier, there are certain criteria for admission to the Mm -hmm. hospital and those are followed to ensure that people's rights are respected and that institutionalization is truly the one and only treatment option, the best treatment option for someone. If they can be treated better in the community, that's what everyone wants. Yeah. Right. We yes. do not provide outpatient care, mm-hmm. but we facilitate connecting people with resources. Mm-hmm. For example, it, when they're discharged, our social work staff uh, helps them in finding.
finding their next step, or if they're not admitted, if they don't meet the criteria for admission, our admission staff works with them to find them resources that do fit their needs in the community. And one change that occurred in the 90s was the Olmstead Act. Mm-hmm. And so our staff will identify those individuals who've been in the hospital for a number of days, Mm -hmm. and we actively focus on treatment for those individuals and find connections within the community to get them into the community and a lower level of care so that individuals aren't, as happened in the past, Mm -hmm. were forgotten. And so we always keep those individuals on our radar so that we know we're providing them the best amount of care and trying to provide that least restrictive Mm -hmm. care to individuals. And I think one of the biggest changes is is just knowing that recovery is possible. You know, at one time, obviously, it was a family member couldn't handle um, dealing with someone, and so they were institutionalized. Now we know so much more about diagnosing mental illness and treating it. And there are just so many more options available. It's really changed care dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I should also point out that we no longer serve the entire state right. as as uh, the hospital. <laughs> yes. Well, we went from several states to Kentucky. Kentucky yeah. And many years ago, I'm not sure how many, but we, we now serve a 50-county area that includes Fayette County. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about the kind of care that's provided at the hospital, what kind of services the hospital provides? Unlike in the past, recovery is a tremendous focus at the new hospital. We've been there for almost six years, but we're going to continue to call it a new hospital because compared to the almost 200-year history, it's it's very, very new. For example, in addition to Eastern State Hospital, which is a 195-licensed bed facility, acute care facility for adults, we also operate two Central Kentucky Recovery Center facilities. Those are small. They're they're almost apartment building-like. They're right on our campus. There's 16 beds each, so we can serve up to 32 individuals. And these are people with severe and persistent mental illness Mm -hmm. who are sometimes transitioning from the hospital, but sometimes elsewhere, and they're transitioning to the community. So they are there for a much longer period of time, whereas someone might be in the hospital for two or three weeks in an acute care hospital like ours. The staff at Central Kentucky Recovery Center works with individuals for a longer period, maybe around six months, and they help them with everything from education to finding jobs to navigating the bus system. Mm-hmm. So it's what the skills that they need to, to live on their own. We also, at the hospital, have a recovery mall, okay. which is is where patients who are able go to participate in activities, they participate in classes, and all of these are geared toward skills that they need or maybe just want once they leave the hospital. Okay. Thank you so much, Vicki and Susan, for your time and giving us a little insight about the history of one of Kentucky's oldest institutions. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. our pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.